strange attraction, mass psychology, synchronicities, and occulted realities. Welcome to the Friday Farcast with Robert Phoenix. All right. Um, welcome to the show. That was the intro. It's always weird to go from the transition from the intro to this. It's kind of clunky, I have to say. But that said, I got some new equipment coming my way. So that should be a good thing. And uh, the equipment is, how do I say this? It's, it's, a, it's a suite of live streaming services. And it's a multi-camera setup. It's very different than what I have now. So it might take me a little bit of a learning curve to get there, but things like transitions and titles and all the stuff that you've been used to uh, will probably change and for the better, we hope. Well, your Friday is about to change for the better, we hope, because uh, we're here today with uh, my good friend, uh, Howdy McCoskey, who's been on this show a number of times. Uh, he's one of uh, the most requested guests. And every time he's been on the show, uh, the feedback has been glowingly positive. Let's see if that streak continues today, because we're going to talk about some things that may trigger some people and uh, may cause some people to react violently to their belief systems. And for other people, it might be very liberating to have this conversation. And for some in between, you might tease these ideas open, accept some, reject some, reject them all. At the end of two hours, uh, we've opened a conversation. We've started a dialogue. And perhaps you might be able to view this realm a little bit differently as a result. Okay, so what I'd like to do before I bring the man on is uh, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the sponsor of the show, which is True Hemp Science. And uh, if you follow uh, my weekday show uh, and you follow any of the other work that I do here on YouTube, you know that I speak very highly of THS's CBD products. And from what I've been able to experience, both personally and through the interaction with the rest of you, a.k.a what I call visible chataria and invisible chataria, uh, you guys have had very similar experiences. In fact, uh, the, the, uh, the experience and the feedback has been so positive that we've put Chris on his heels to catch up with his gummy orders. Of course, the gummies are really good for uh, going to sleep at night. He also has some tinctures that do the same thing as the gummies. So if you don't, if you can't get the gummies and he's working on a pretty significant backlog um, for those, it's a, that's a good place to be, by the way. If you have a business, you, you want to be catching up with yourself to some degree. But there's an alternative. And all you have to do if you're interested is uh, go to Trueham Science and check out their, their products. It's a whole shop menu over here, right? All, and then you'll be able to learn all about uh CBD, his particular CBD, which is different. This is Chris goes at this a little bit differently than other people who who uh, process uh, the um, 
the hemp plant. Now, if you have questions, you can always call him. And he and Marsha, who's his uh, assistant there, are very good at answering your questions. Uh, Marsha has been studying Chris's product for quite a while, knows the ins and outs of it. So if you don't happen to get Chris, you'll get Marsha, and they're, they're more than willing to uh, work with you on your CBD needs, particularly if you're looking for an alternative for the gummies, which they do have in a tincture form. Okay, so if you go to triumscience.com backslash ref backslash 23, that's the portal, that's the window. If you go there and you spend $100 or more, you get free product. $100, uh, $150 more, free shipping. All you got to do is put in 15MINS in the little checkout box, your code, and that lets Chris know where you're coming from and the deal that you're getting. Okay. All right. Um, I was gonna I was gonna talk about I'll do it at the end of the show. We'll we'll do it at the end of the show. We're we're gonna we're gonna do a little memorial for our friend Janine's little companion that is passed on and returned to dog. And uh, we'll do that at the end. Okay, uh, let's not waste any more time. Not that we're wasting time. It's all relative, isn't it? But uh, let's get to what's important here today. And that's uh, to bring on my guest, uh, Mr. Howdy McCoskey. And uh, we're going to go on a ride today. Let me put the cans back on, as they say in the business. Yeah. Yeah. So here hey, we Robert. are. I'm, well, I'm good. And I know you're doing pretty well because we, we just talked a little while ago. So um, we're going to talk about your book today, Exiting Plato's Cave. And you and I had uh, a little bit of a talk about this a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and so yeah, I know where you're coming from. And you and I are more or less on the same page with this. And we're going to explore the different parameters and permutations of your, your latest work. And uh, a big shout out to Varushka, um, who stepped up and, and really helped you organize a lot of this material. And uh, that, that was great. And again, to me, you know, whatever the end game is, the process is still important. So when we connect with somebody and um, there's a helping hand and, and they're able to step in and, you know, help us complete certain things or just be a part of our life, I think it's an important piece of being here. So uh, thanks again to Varushka for that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about you. People know about your work, um, Waking Up to Truth, uh, your, your book on Egypt, your book on the uh, World's Fairs, and each one of them exploring big questions. What's this all about? What happened? Why does this thing exist? And are there answers? And if so what are the answers? And you've come to the big question, the really big question, which is, why are we here? Wh what is going on here? What defines the terms and conditions of this world and what happens after we leave our bodies? Which is, I think, probably the ultimate question. So leaving Plato's yeah. cave is an analogy you've used before. And you went back to this idea of Plato's cave to try to rediscover what was really going on with Plato's cave. Was there a Plato? Was there a cave? Like all these things that are important to the topic that we're about to dive into. 
So with that, why don't I uh, give the floor to you and let you talk a little bit about how you got to this place, and then we're gonna we're gonna dive in. Sure. So uh, yeah, I guess as an opening here for everybody, um, you know, I want to start off by you know officially making sure everybody knows. You know, I don't know for sure what's going to happen after we die. I don't know for sure how this realm was created and exactly why. All I have is a lot of years of work, which is generated into the thesis we're going to talk about tonight that became my new book, Exit the Cave. And it's probably, for some people, going to sound very negative. But to me, it's actually not negative because removing false and removing lies, and particularly foundational lies, means you actually get closer to truth. The longer you're holding on to the false, actually, to me, that's negative, even though you feel good. Right. So um, that's where this project was coming from. How did I get here? Yeah. Um, so I'd finished uh, the Exposing the Expositions book and kind of threw a wrench into whatever I believed about history. And But I had this nagging problem. For a long before I wrote Falling for Truth, which was a story of my death experience and and sort of Falling um, for Truth, my bad. I said waking up. My apologies. Yeah, Falling for Truth. Falling for truth. And um, and there was there was a lot of elements of my research twenty years ago and things I was digging into that I pulled back from that book. I pulled back from I I, I touched on it, but I didn't go as strong as I was researching because it went against the sort of the standard spiritual message. And I, I thought, well, there's 500 books with the same message. I, I should, I should navigate a little smoother. About six months ago, eight months ago, I kind of, from coming out of, again, of our two year experience, all the conversations I've had with people like yourself and so many other good ones out there, I kind of had to come to the point of like, Hey, you know what? We're in a suffering pit of hell. Let's, that, let's, let's be absolutely clear. That's what this place is. And we've been lied to about it for ever since we were actually before we were even born. And so the book, and I can give everyone a quick overview of the book, and then we can, then we can talk. So sure. the book is right now, it's a PDF book. It'll come out as a print book in a couple of weeks, but it's right now it, it, I wanted to have it available because I didn't know how long, you know, even the internet would be running and lasting given our situation. So I wanted to make sure something was available immediately for people who wanted it. It's 15 chapters. The first chapter is an overview of things like reincarnation. Uh, is this place a, a, a food uh, type of farm for non-human non, uh, entities? What kind of creator created this place? And the idea of the memory wipe, all things I'm sure you'll want to talk about. Chapter two is about Plato's cave and mostly what's missing in the story of Plato's cave. Chapter three is on origin stories, uh, be they Cathars, Gnostics, uh, a number of different people. I have some small chapters on some near-death experiences, on uh, an action plan for our death, a recapitulation. I have a bit placed in as a novel. I talk about movies like Dark City and Westworld in chapter eight. I go through a few more chapters of near-death experiences. I talk about prayer. I talk about spiritual warfare, lucid dreaming, try to discuss a bit more of what the soul is. I have a chapter on the Cathars and their belief structure, and I end with a discussion of uh, Castaneda's active side of infinity and dealing with not just the after-death experience, but the after-death experience in multiple astral realms. So that's what I tried to put together, which I'm calling book one, because I know this is just my warm-up. 
there, there's another, there's another one that's going to take me sometime next year to another level. But I, this is, this is the opening, you know, the opening start of everything. And that's, that's the subject matter. So what would you like to talk about, Robert? Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me bring up the PDF so I can um, have some reference points here and we can, we can begin to sort of drill down by the way. Um, you know, just again, a disclaimer. Uh, I, I always love these disclaimers where the content you're about to witness may be triggering. Right. And, and if, if you consent to clicking on this link, we're not responsible for any. So there is a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that here, but we're all, we're all adults. And it's good to be able to talk about these things in a way that are, uh, open, have an open conversation. Yeah. And again, I, it's, I think it's, it's, I think it's all positive because it's all about finding your own inner power. It's all about finding where the power of our being really lies. It does that lie on something outside of us or is it something inside of us? And the problem is most everything of where things lie is a lie. Right. So let's get back to what happened in the last two years. In 2020, our world seemingly shifted in a much more radical way. We've had semi-radical shifts. We've had collective traumas that we have experienced, whether it's 9-11 or uh, JFK for some other countries, it might be some other event. But we, we've, we've, we've experienced these incremental sort of traumatic shifts and they've been usually regional or, or um, national at times. But in 2020, it went global. We went through a global crisis. We went through a global trauma. And at the beginning, I believe there was a significant amount of goodwill that people were willing to uh, bank on for a brief period of time. Although there were some of us who... Uh, saw from a very early point of this whole thing where things were going and they weren't going to get that goodwill uh, at all. But for the most part, most people aren't really aware of that. If they are to varying degrees, we're like, okay, maybe this is real. The evidence is compelling. We'll do what you tell us to do, especially if it's only for two weeks to stop the spread. Well, it didn't stop there. It kept going and going and going, it kept getting darker and darker and more demanding. Meanwhile, we have other crises that are starting to take place and pop up. You have the ongoing psychodrama with Trump and uh, his uh, ability or inability, whatever you want to call it, to stay in office and stay in power. Uh, and then we have the whole summer of Floyd thing here in the United States, which again begins to spread globally. Uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, so things start to really happen in 2020. There is this acceleration that takes place. And my experience is that every time we reach a new decade, there's a major change that is instituted. You just go back decade by decade by decade and it happens. So here we are in the 2020s and there's, this is the new change, right? In uh, the 2010s, it was everything that happened on the other side of before that with 2009, the housing crisis, everything that took place during that period, you have the election of Obama, that's a whole other series of changes. In 2000, it's Bush, 
it's 9-11, right? So every time we move into a decade, there's something major that takes place during that decade. And this time it was the, the Pearl Harbor for the entire planet. And I think during that time, what was revealed, maybe for the first time in such a grand scale, the absolute tyranny, programming, disregard, and horror for humanity. We had never experienced that before. You know, people being snatched away or beaten up or forced out of their, this, this has never happened before. Right? So now it's almost as if the, they've unlocked the gates of hell and they're, they're allowing us to see things maybe as they always were, or maybe a more visceral permutation of it. So where, so would, would you, would you say that that's a, that's a fairly correct summation and where are you with, cause I know you talk about it in, in the chapters, like it's always been this way. There've been different versions and, but maybe not as visceral. So where are you with that? Yeah. So yes, yeah, so we've got two, two different sort of things to talk about, right? It's the Plato's cave idea, which is the illusion and the, what does that story even mean? And then we've got this other side, which is kind of, a, and, and you're digging at a foundational belief that everyone has. And, and I had it for a while too. I, 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 even though I, this place was I always, oh, this place is terrible. Boy, this place is suffering, but there's still someone who cares, you know, there's, there's, it was the, the belief structure is this is a realm that's made by some sort of loving God who has set this place up either for as a place of learning, a school, a place of experience. For some, they believe it's a place where we can make all of our wishes come true. And then we will die and rejoin this person or God if we have enough faith. That's kind of the underlying structure that most people have come to believe. Uh, and, and religion tends to follow that. Certainly the new age follows that there's been, but there's been a few groups in the past that don't follow that one being the Gnostics who wrote the Nag Hammadi, uh, documents. Another are the Cathars, the group of 12th of 13th century France who were exterminated by the church of Rome for, for actually no one really knows why the church of Rome was so scared of them that they needed to get rid of them. And, and the, um, the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar from that area. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the Cathars' number one belief was this is a realm created by an evil deity. And we are in a reincarnation cycle. We are in a reincarnation trap. And the only thing that matters is getting out of the trap. Any material, any material improvement is useless if you're still trapped and are going to be back in this mess again. So I've come to sort of finally answer your question. I've come so much closer to the beliefs of these two groups of realizing, which is if I could simplify their beliefs. And as I know, though, this won't be fit exactly these groups and, and on various pieces of it, but it's I'm simplifying for people is that there is a what they would call a good God or a father uh, who is a who is a, an absolute male female piece. It's not just a masculine thing, but that exists sort of out there somewhere. And in the course of depending on the on the on the story, the creation story, a uh, a false god was created, the demiurge Rex Monday, uh, many different names for it, who created this particular realm. And by this realm, I'm not just meaning the material. I mean the material, the etheric, the astral, the angel realm. It doesn't matter if there's a realm that is 
has any kind of form or activity or action or geometry or mathematics, it's in the con it's in this, it's in this simulated construct. And the and the the deity creates created all of it. And the, the what I've come to see is that it's been created as an energy harvesting device. That you might look at the whole realm like a giant computer. Not exactly. It's just a, it's just a metaphor, right? But as a giant computer and as a computer, something this large running this massive uh, uh, an experience needs a tremendous amount of power. Well, where do they get the power? They get the power from the beings who are who they are manifesting within it. Now, the good news for us is so the bad news is we're we're a material form in an evil realm who's which, which is only here to harvest our energy to repower the realm to keep it going in an endless cycle. The good news is, depending on the creation story, a spark, what you might call a spark of the divine, was dropped into us. Some come from Sophia, some it was God snuck into the realm, some some would say Jesus came into the realm. It depends on the story, but gave gave particularly humans, but I just don't believe humans. I believe everything in this realm was given a divine spark. So within, we have this thing that is not evil from this realm. It's the thing that the Demiurge wants the most because it has the most power, but we have given away our power to turning away from what is truly out, which is truly great outside of the outside of this realm to focus on 999 things in the realm. And that's how I've come to see this place. This place is designed for one thing, generating energy. And the best way to generate energy is make people suffer, um, make them live in torturous, difficult, unhappy, painful, constant um, confused states. Um, and there's many layers of how that gets done, but we're not just talking about the material. We're talking about the pre-birth state. We're talking about the after-death state. We're talking about the astral state. All of it is all designed in this one giant web of, what's the word? One giant web of deception that we keep falling for. Right. Well, okay. So you, you laid out a lot there, and these are ideas that people would be familiar with with a movie like The Matrix um, and in all three versions of it, or a movie like uh, Dark City, uh, Actually, which, yeah. Yeah, which, which has its own kind of version of all this. So one of the things that I, I want to ask is I'm going to play a little devil's advocate with you here today. And one of the things that I, that I wanted to ask you, like straight out of the gate, is that Part of your thesis is to question historical events that we have been lied to historically. How do you know that the Cathar story is actually true? Because you're basing your model on a, on a historical event. And part of the thesis here is that history is a lie. How do we know that's not a lie? As I say in the book, we we know so little about them. We know almost we know like literally nothing. We have tiny fragments of information, and so all I'm presenting is the fragments of information that have come down, and we're working with what's there and what's possibly there. And in fact, while I'm using the thesis of the Cathars in chapter 14, when I talk about them, I actually do a, a huge part of the chapter to kind of ask, did they did they even know what the hell they were? Well, doing? I think obviously I'm not I sure. three chapters, so I I, I I didn't get there, but yeah, I mean I think it's oh, yeah. A, so it's, yeah, so so we actually in chapter fourteen, I started asking that their their great uh, escape route is something called the consolamatum, which is this very specific 
prayer rite that was supposed to be given at some point in your life, usually just before death. And I went through it in detail, which is supposed to end the reincarnation cycle. And I'm like, if this is it, if this is what they're doing, they're not getting out of here. So are they fooling themselves? Are, is it, has it been changed? Has it been, we, are we being lied to? Are they being lied to? So to answer your question, we have no idea. We don't even know. We don't even know if, if this is a simulation, we don't even know when the simulation started. We, we would assume in our head it started, you know, millions of years ago. But what if the simulation started 30 years ago? What if it actually started in 1990? And before that, actually, history, as we think of it, didn't actually happen. It's all just uh, it's all this like backstory in Westworld. So it makes it all very difficult to ever stand up and say, I'm holding this as guaranteed belief. But here's what we have of information that seems to be presented to us that we can use. And that's how I'm treating it. Right. Even something like translating the Nag Hammadi, right? You're, you're basically trusting a third party to interpret that text in a way that would be neutral, right? Or, or at the very least um, compatible with whatever linguistic truth is available right. to it. So that's right. And I would to- like, I know, for example, no matter what, which version you go to, it's, it's wrong. Because, uh, for example, Coptic, first of all, is a very difficult language to, uh, to actually translate from. And it's, it, it's tremendous amount of wordplay. And it's also not really structured well. So I learned from my time working with the ancient Egyptian texts when I was trying to actually translate them myself directly. And when I would start getting pieces of layered information and start seeing this is completely different than what these scholars are presenting as the translation for these texts. So yeah, again, I, I know we're dealing with we're dealing with problems. The, the question becomes, are we getting at least enough of a, of a directional marker to give us an indication of where we're going? And of course, the, 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 greatest, the greatest piece of it all is not what somebody said in a, another book, what somebody said here. It's your own personal experience. It's, right. it's what, have I, what have I experienced for 50 years in my case in my life? What are the things I've gone through? What have I heard? Who have I talked to? What have I seen around me? How does that, like that, that has to be your number one marker point. It doesn't matter what's in a book. It certainly doesn't matter what's in my book. It's what's in your own personal book of living. That's the only thing that really, that's the number one thing that's going to give you some kind of answer. So the, the main, the main perp, or the main foundation of, of this new thesis, you might say, even though it sounds like I'm talking about all these other things, it'll always link back to something in my own experience. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, one of the things that I was told a long time ago by what I would call my, my first spiritual teacher, who was, I think way ahead of the game and some of these concepts will come up and one of them definitely comes up in your, in your work. And one of the things that he told me was that each man is given according to his own belief, right? Like if that's what your belief is, that's what you're given whatever that is, you could have, you could have a belief in prosperity. Ultimately this thing that we're in will give you a version of that, whatever that is. And if that is sufficient for some people for a period of time, it will work. But usually what happens is it stops working and it's like, okay, well that, that worked for a while. What about this? Then try this out. And it's like, Oh yeah, well, you know, kind of works. And then that stops working. Right. So ultimately what you come to is theoretically discarding your beliefs 
whatever those beliefs are. And then you're able to experience whatever we call this reality is without any kind of screens or filters. And that's, it's a difficult practice, but um, it's, I think it's getting closer to what you are attempting to get at, which is when you begin to either cycle through or eliminate a systematic belief that something new possibly could emerge. However, I don't think we're ever op- we can ever operate in this realm uh, clean of all of these. What did you call them? Uh, beliefs. Uh, yeah, not beliefs. The 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 um, uh, exp- uh, not experiences of th- things that are things that are influencing us. We are right. always going to be influenced by things that we don't know we're being influenced. Just just in our genetic makeup itself. There will be things genetically we will like and not like. There'll be things we'll do and we'll not do. So we've already got that. We've got this weird structure in our form. Yeah, then you've got the layers of belief and ideas and concept. Then you've got the experiences and the memories and how those are playing in your world and how, how much we trust our memory to start with. And so much of who we are who we are in this moment is based on our memory of what we think happened. So we have that as a problem. And then we've got we have no memory of any, even if some people can get some memories to two or one year old, that's as far as they go. They don't get memories uh, in the womb. They don't get memories of pre-birth. And assuming now, as I believe that reincarnation is like a 99.9% guaranteed fact, we have no memories of any of our past lives. So because we are basically left hanging with nothing, that right away to me ended the idea that this is any kind of school of learning because the only way you learn is by doing something, having an experience, seeing how it turned out, deciding if you got an outcome you liked or you didn't like, or, and you can begin to make changes as you go along. Now, if it's a pretty crazy system, if I touch stinging nettle, hurt my fingers, have to learn to put on gloves. If I'm going to, if I'm going to pick stinging nettle, die, come back in a new life, and I have to touch the stinging nettle again because I don't remember that it stings me. That's a pretty dumb system. And that's actually the system we're under. You know, I don't go to grade five and forget everything I've learned in grade one to four and I have to start all over again. But that's kind of how this realm is. So we have these issues of we don't know what happened before we were born. We don't know what sort of what's the word I'm looking for. Influences were placed into us before we even got here. Contracts that we signed. There's a lot of discussion by certain people who still can access some of these memories, some of these near-death experiences and pre-birth memories. And they talk about soul contracts. Yeah. Yeah. There are cases where people have documented uh, that, you know, with, without, with very little, um, drag on or very 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 little what's the word i'm looking for dispute after they've like really fleshed some of this stuff out that they clearly have memories of another time and Mm -hmm. one that really sticks out for me was a young man who uh had a memory when i say young i'm talking like five six seven years old and he had a memory of being a fighter pilot um in world war ii do you know the story at all yep yeah. So he yeah, I clearly, think his name is James. Yeah. James, he clearly had a link to some other thing. Now, let me ask you a question about that. Do you think that that's a mistake, right? Like, like whatever happened in the between life wiped that he didn't get totally wiped. Like how, how does this filament of history, memory, and information occur? Do you have any idea? 
No, I mean, there are so many stories, though. That's why I've come to, to now believe that reincarnation is probably a true thing. Um, but it's not for our benefit. Uh, it's always presented as if it's for our benefit, it's happening. I now see it's, it makes more sense that it's not for our benefit, first of all. Um, but there are just so many stories of young children having these memories, memories which are ver verifiable. Like this right. James story, that was verifiable. Yeah. Another story, I don't know, if it, I don't know where it, that one came from, but it was a, a young boy who was who who said he he remembered his where he used to live in Dallas. He was married to this particular woman, uh, et cetera, et cetera. He had all this information. And finally, to shut the kid up, the parents took him to Dallas. They found this woman, took him, went to the house, sat down, and this kid, seven years old, started saying, "So where's my guitar?" What do you mean, my guitar? What, what, what have you done with it? What's in the back room? Oh, yeah, go get it. I haven't seen my guitar in so long. And he gets a seven years old and he now starts playing the guitar, I guess, like he used to. And what about my books? Have you got this book and this book? No, I gave that one away, but I've still got this one. Oh, great. Bring that out. And the parents just sat there literally stunned because it was pretty obvious that this was the woman's husband. It was there, there's just no way a seven-year-old kid could be faking all this. And eventually when he turned 18, the kid, the, the parents just let him loose and said, go ahead. You can, you can just be with her again. So what happened? Did, why do some remember and some don't? I don't know. I mean, you know, this, the, the hermetic cup of forgetfulness or all of these traditions have this story of you come in here with the, with the idea of forgetfulness and we have this story of we we're, we're supposed to remember, which is stupid. If, if if the system is set up for us to remember, well, don't have us forget. So the fact that you're being told to forget is obvious that like a robot in Westworld, the robot gets killed in Westworld. It's just been treated like dirt. It gets killed in Westworld. It gets sent to the cleanup center. They fix it up. They patch it up. And the most important thing is the memory wipe. Because if the robots remember how many times they've been raped, killed, and destroyed, they're going to all of a sudden... I'm getting the hell out of here. And that's really, that's the story of, of Westworld is, is Dolores and Maeve all of a sudden tacking on the memories of all of their previous incarnations and all the ways they've been treated. So the obvious answer is I'm getting the hell out of here. I'm not staying here one more day. And that would happen to us if we remembered all of our past lives. Cause, cause some lives, okay, that life might be okay. We, that was, that was nice, but we're definitely going to have another 50 or hundred that were just torture. So why would we want to take a shot on potentially going through that again? You know, it's just, let's just, let's just figure out, let's just figure out where home is and let's go there and let's just leave this behind. Westworld is a really interesting example uh, for a number of different reasons. One of which you've, you've clearly uh, latched onto. When I started to watch Westworld back when I actually had HBO, I no longer have HBO. But I started to watch it, and one of the things that uh, stuck out for me was that it wasn't just leaving Westworld. What, what I saw that as a metaphor was, was leaving the plantation because the main characters in Westworld happen to be Black, right? They happen to be Black, and there seems to be kind of an undercurrent there that locks into, you know, a certain kind of critical race theory or woke theory, right? It's in there, right? It's in there. Now, if you, if you, if you look at the plantation as a metaphor for being a slave, well, you can clearly universalize that message, right? Because that's the, that, that to me is really what I think you're referring to at a higher level. Right. But this is just my take on it because yeah. I exactly. look at it from a political and social and cultural lens. That's what I was seeing. 
when also if I, again i am no expert on westworld you know because i have a limited exposure to it but if i'm not mistaken the lead character is played by thandy newton is that correct like she's uh, a, that well there's two there's two right there's dolores who is um played by marilyn manson's former um girlfriend and then yeah and then Fandy is the second. So there's there's actually two female main, technically two female main characters with uh, technically one male character who's playing two roles in two different time frames, right? So where's where's Jeffrey Wright in that mix? The guy who's, I think, a, a, a technician, and does he does he wake up to the fact that he's actually an, an android robot? Where is he in that mix? Right. Again, the, the, the whole point of it is similar because it is Plato's cave as well. And, and the point of the whole story is that we are the robots. Like right. until I'm until, sorry, I took you, you I took you down a little side path there. But, you know, it, yeah, no, but that but that's that's a big one. If, if you don't get that symbolically, we are the robots, then you're missing the whole point because the, the robots are called hosts. That's the that's the word. Right. right. Host. The people, the others, the pose of the humans who are coming to the park are called guests. Right. Now, if we look in a parasitic relationship, the parasite always forms to a host. There's always a host that the parasite eats off of. And again, so now if, if we start taking this on, on a broader and broader scale, I think whether they knew it or not, they're laying out the foundation of this entire realm of how things actually operate, which is a group of parasitic entities, which we can call arconic beings or whatever you want to call them. It doesn't matter what the name of demonic being doesn't matter. And we technically are the hosts, energetic hosts to them. And as you begin to see Westworld in those lines, you're beginning to get this sense of what's going on. So we have Bernard, who is a robot, who, who is tricked to believe that he's one of the controllers. Right. So again, so really we're talking about then that I think that's giving indication of the controlling mechanism that's we think is running this reality the, the whoever we think is in charge how many are really consciously in charge and how many are equivalent robots that are just that are think they're think they're making choices and aren't so when you start breaking the that show down into so many pieces it's like yeah we could talk about that for hours because it's like it, it right. literally brings us to our experience now right 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 so i want to talk about alchemy a little bit too because you get into this in your in your book and i think there's an alchemical element to uh westworld and we're also i think right now i think we're actually taking part in a planetary alchemy that may or may not be in our own best interest that's not in your book but i do want to discuss that um let's talk a little bit about karma because karma is another uh plank a main plank in your in your work and right. I have been off the karma train for a long time. This goes back again to my same guy who told me each man is given according to his own beliefs. Uh, I was young, you know, I'm throwing around, you know, what I would consider spiritual ideas. And I brought up karma and he said, karma doesn't exist. This was probably 1980. I'm like, Oh, mm. okay. Well, tell me more, tell me more. Right. And he says, he says, it's a concept is a concept i'm like all right let me sit with that you know so when i when i when i when i talk I, you know or when i work with somebody i don't usually use the word karma in fact it's almost been excised from my vocabulary 
um, because I, I, I would tend to agree that it's, it's a concept. Now, that said, let's get into the philosophical and moral implications of what that means. If there is no karma, and you get into this a little bit, then why should anybody be responsible for what they do? If there's no theoretical, no spiritual repercussions, why? Okay, yeah, we, that's a good question. That's a, a valuable question. And that's where, of course, a number of people would go the same route if they hear that kind of message. So first I want to say that if, uh, if you're looking for also more in-depth stuff to study here, uh, I recommend the site by Wayne Bush, trickedbythelight.com, an unbelievable amount of research he's done. Another gentleman, uh, another gentleman has a YouTube channel, Forever Conscious Research, where he digs through near-death experiences and pre-life experiences of people. I, I just want to get those in there because I don't want anyone to think like, hey, I'm a guy and I've got all the answers and I figured it right, all no, out. Right, no, it's clear I'm in your book. And you, like, you source a lot of different yeah. people in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying that to the people listening now yeah. so that they, no one no one is being tricked either thinking they should believe what I say either. Right. So, yeah, karma becomes a big an issue. And karma is, of course, it's somewhat related to the idea of sin that uh, and it's linked. And then in Eastern traditions to even to the reincarnation cycle. So we have sort of mini karma where your life will be dictated on good actions or bad actions and that will determine what happens to you in the future. And then when you die, you'll have an overall karmic life review. And based on that, it'll be determined if you get to have a nice life. And you get, because this is in, in some, some Eastern traditions. Well, if you're, uh, if you're rich and happy, it's because you were good in the last life. And oh, oh if you're not, you're going to become an animal or something, you know, like, uh, it, it, so all of that just right away was ludicrous to me, this idea. So once you start to see that because of the memory wipe, so it, the memory wipe is the thing that destroys karma. If, if, if the only way karma could actually exist as a thing, you would have to remember the things you did in the past that were not good in order that you could understand then why the experiences you're having now are those experiences. Like at least on a small scale, and you know, I know if I put my hand on a on a hot plate on a hot stove, my hand's going to get burned. There's a I can see the you can see the relation there, but once you start taking it to these bigger scales, there's there there there's nothing there. So it's in it's indicative, and certainly from the near death experiences that I've that I've gone into and read a lot of, the next life you get has zero indication on this one. It, this life means it doesn't change anything on what the, the new life is going to literally be like a clean slate. You might go from murderer to something else. You might go from something else to murder. Like literally it, it could just, it could switch flat over overnight. However, to answer Robert's question, it's highly recommended to live as good of life as you possibly can as clean a life as you possibly can, because it seems like one of the first things that's going to happen is the first trick they're going to try to throw on you after you die is the life review, where some being, being of light, some special, wonderful being is going to come to determine your 
your existence, how good of a bad, how good or bad little girl or boy you've been. And this will determine why you need to go back. It's always, let me show you how bad you were. So you're going to go back because you haven't learned enough love. You haven't learned enough kindness. You weren't a nice enough person. So you're going back to learn how to be better. Oh yes, I need to go back and learn how to be better. But of course you forget it all, but I'm going to go back to learn how to be better. Okay. The problem with the life review is if you've got lots of stuff in your past that is obviously not good, there's way more things that can be picked upon in that life review to say, look what a terrible life you've lived. There's more places you can be tricked. The cleaner life you've lived, or at the very least, the better of a life recapitulation you've done where you've come to understand everything that's gone on in your life. You've seen it clearly. When the life review comes, there's nothing that can surprise you. There's nothing that these beings can throw at you. There's nothing that they can try to trick you with. You can say, I know my life. I know what happened. I know why that occurred. I, I, I learned from it. I moved on because the whole concept of a life review, the whole concept of karma that there's some judging entity outside of you that is that is greater than you is one of the traps in itself. You give it, you give away your power instantaneously to some other outside authority to tell you whether you're good or not. You know yourself. You let's put it this way: the only karma you need to know is the karma within. You know what's a, what's a good thing to do, and you know what's a bad thing to do. And you you know yourself after you've done it. I shouldn't have done that. Boy, that was a bad thing to do, and I wished I hadn't done it. But so you don't need you don't need to give it to someone outside. You already know these things, right. and I you're going to be able yeah. to judge yourself yeah. on your own actions. I think that's a I think that's a good differentiation. I would again nomenclature you know, whether it's my, my attachment to the belief, I would say instead of karma, that's the God within, right? That is, that is the, this universe to me, that's just my perception, right? Cause yeah, yeah. If you don't want, you don't necessarily want to corrupt the potential and the validity, not even the validity, the potential and the, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the relationship to that thing that helps you know that you fucked up. Right. I mean, I think for me, I think that's, it's just a little bit of different nomenclature. Um, right. Let's talk about secret societies. Let's talk about the cremation of care. Let's talk about what they know about this system. Cause obviously they yes. probably know. Right. And yeah. And they get to the past life review and they have fucked people over six ways to Sunday. Right. And they're like, fuck you. I know who you are. You, you, you got nothing on me. My guess would be what we talk about there is we've also got those who you might say, not say it, perhaps sold their soul. We, we hear this response as, as sort of like a, a metaphor. I don't think it's a metaphor. I think it's, I think it's very, very real. And of course, the question of what is a soul, what, but, but like anything, everything's, everything in the material world is a commodity on some level. It can be sold. And the soul is, it's not real. It, it's the furthest part of you in the dream that's still in this, in the cave, but not out yet, but is the thing that can get you out. Right. And if you get, if you give that away, the thing that is the most important part of you, which is, I think, part of what's been going on in the last two years, there's actually been a, a war being waged on the souls of people to see who's going to give them up and who's going to 
who's going to hold on tighter to their essence and who they who and what they what they are so if that's been given up and you know you've given it up then you know you're not getting out of here you're you're in this you're in this you're in this experience until it ends you can't, you, you're not going to, you're, you're probably not, maybe you can get it back. I don't know, but it's probably a really, it's probably really hard work. I think some try to do it, try to sold it, try to get it back. So I think that's part of this thing you're talking about. Once you know, once you know, it's gone, then it's like, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get what I'm going to get whatever I can for myself. Cypher in the matrix is a perfect example. That's what he's doing in that scene with Smith. He's selling his soul, right? He's selling his soul so he can, he can be he can be rich and important in the dream. Make me an actor, you know. Uh, this this idea of and once you know it's gone, I think I think it changes to uh, what can, what can I get for me? What can how much power and energy can I get for myself? Because and and oddly, then you would have to keep the dream this construct going. You have to keep the the, the simulation going because if the simulation ever ends they know they end. Like, I don't know for you and me, Robert, who's still, well, I'm assuming you still have your soul like I do. <laughs> but I'd like to think so. If this, yeah, if the simulation ended tomorrow, if the switch was thrown and it's all over, probably we go back to where we came from automatically. We would just return because there's nothing, there would be zero holding us anymore. I use a metaphor in the book, right, of like a leaf getting caught in a, in a small whirlpool in a river, that the river is the essence, and then there's this little spinning whirlpool. And as long as the water comes at the exact speed and then nothing changes, that leaf will just spin eternally in that whirlpool. But as soon as the water changes, the water level changes, maybe the temperature changes, it could be enough to alter the whirlpool a little bit, and the leaf can go out and continue continue down the river and i get a sense that's where it is so if if you're if you're now dependent on the whirlpool you now have to act in ways that are keeping it going so in a sense they're they're, they're evil in the way they're acting but there's also bizarre rationality to why they're behaving that way because they know they need to keep the system running the way the system they know or believe the system is or they themselves will cease to exist. It's so it's a it's a very strange way of starting to see this reality. Um, at least how I see it today. I might see it differently tomorrow, but that's how I'm seeing it today. So you're so you're saying that even if a particular group understands the cosmic game, that they understand the archons, they understand Rex Mundi, they understand the past life review, they understand the wipe, they understand that all that is false in a trap and they know it and they understand the mechanics of it. And they're, so they're, if they do that and they know that there's no karma, then again, my question, I'm going to keep hammering on this, right? Maybe yeah. until I get the right answer, or we just agree to disagree. But, but, that, but that, that would be assuming that they still have their soul in place that they still have the divine spark, you might say the, the totality of what you might call the completeness for good within them. As long as someone has that, they're going to operate in a very different, if that's gone, if you don't, if, if that is somehow removed or you didn't get it to start with, like we, we there, there's a lot of beings in this realm that you and I both know are just non-player characters. They're just, right. they're just, they're truly robots. So a robot is not going to be making ethical decisions. The robot is going to completely go exactly what the programming is. So we also have this issue of 
we really don't know who or what these beings that we're talking about are. We don't know. Are they creatures with souls? Are they robots? Are we, so, so it makes it very difficult for us to really answer these questions because we haven't been able to truly study them and know what they are. So, so my, my, again, this is just my intuition. My intuition tells me that these people know what's going on. And the, the, the piece that you brought up is that part of their deal is to perpetuate this world, I think is an important Maybe, one. Yeah. I think it's yeah. an important one. But you touched on the concept of good, right? Isn't good even a concept? I mean, yes. I mean right? So again, yes. that's, all, that's all relative, well, when, when, I, when I'm using good in this context, I don't mean it in the standpoint of good versus evil, the way we would think about it, because technically good in this realm is another type of evil, actually. It's just on a lesser scale. The good I'm referring to, which you might call with a capital G, relates to this thing that's outside of, of this dream. As long as you are within the realm of Rex Mundi, as long as you are in some level of the Demiurge's realm, you can never truly be good because you're already being, how's the, how's, the, how's the way I can describe it? You're being automatically downgraded a level just by being in here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's why the Cathars always said that the story of Jesus, the way it's presented, can't be true. He couldn't have born as a, as a, as a physical being in this world because he instantly would have become evil as soon as he became uh, manifested in the realm. So for them, they said for the story to uh, still hold its water, Jesus would have to have been a hologram, that he literally would have had to have been uh, pre yeah, presented in like a hologram, never actually had physical form, because only then could the divine good be kept. So if you think of it that way, as soon as you go from essence to soul to different levels and material, you're dropping, you're dropping, you're dropping, you're dropping. So what, what we're doing is what we see as good is like a minor, a minor influence of this true good. That doesn't mean I'm saying not to do it. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a much more enjoyable way to live, but it's, it's, it's not really what we think it. it's like. It's like someone saying, I know what love is uh, or love is. And it's like, it's, it's, it love with an L which is outside the dream is completely different than anything we think of of love inside the dream. So it's, it's kind of like that. It's this, it's stuff that's very hard to put into words and it's very easy to get mixed up in, but it's once you begin to see that these beings that are controlling this realm, they are playing both sides all the time. They're playing the dark side and they're playing the light side. Um, so we, we, this is a question we can throw out to you and, and to all the people watching is this when you pray, for example, you praying to something, usually praying to something outside of yourself, asking for help, assistance, knowledge, wisdom. Who do you know who you're really praying to? How do you know you're not becoming prey by praying? How do you know for sure that this wonderful loving entity that you're praying to isn't a dark entity masquerading as something good in order to manipulate you, steal your energy or whatever? Why not learn to pray to yourself? Why not trust the power within and put your prayer here, at least until you can begin to truly know for sure when you go outside yourself, who or what you're praying to? Yeah. I mean, I think people have had different experiences with prayer. Um, for better or worse, there are unanswered prayers, a lot of unanswered prayers. And then the, the, uh, 
the maxim or the or the or the uh, standard definition would be well, you know, it's in God's will and God's time, right? So if your prayer doesn't get answered, you have to have faith that that the that it will be answered, or it's not the right time, or you're not praying in the right way, right? So there's that. But then there are moments which means people- which 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 means so which means it's your fault, right? That that kind of that kind of that kind of thing instantly says you're not doing it the right way, you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, or God has decided you're not supposed to have it. So why would you pray in the first place anyway? If it's God's will, if it's going to happen to God's will, why would you pray and ask for something if it's going to? Right. God will decide to do it or not. So so you get all of these bizarre. If you really start digging into this, you start really asking these questions and again like so let me ask you let me ask you just talking let me ask you a quick question so let's say somebody does pray and their prayer comes true whatever that is right is is that the demi urge tricking them into prayer working or 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 are they actually having contact with something that's transcendent and good that's a, that's a good question. It might be one or the other. It could be, in some cases, it could be one. In some cases, it could be the other. I think there are true access points to what you might call the divine, the true divine, the thing that is outside this realm. You know, the the the, the Sistine Chapel ceiling of the God and Adam putting their, reaching their fingers together, which right. would be the divine spark, right? And I think there's a lot of cases where certain prayers are answered by the Demiurge because that's the life script that needs to happen. And so they want to make sure that uh, just like, just like if the cow gets, if the sheep gets lost in the field, the farmer goes out and brings the sheep back. He's not really that concerned about the life of the sheep, as long as the sheep stay in here until it's time to send me send them to the slaughterhouse. I don't want to lose my sheep. They're my, they're my, they're my, you know, my cash crop. So you can say that the demi, that the farmer helps the sheep the same way the demiurge might help us. However, let's flip this idea of prayer around to something else. So when I told this story to my native medicine man friend, Jerry, and I told him about this idea, why don't we pray to ourselves, not outside? He told me a story. And the story he gave me was uh, about 20 years ago, somewhere in New Mexico or, or Arizona, there was a drought that was lasting like months. And they had gone to local native medicine, local medicine men. They had prayed for rain. Nothing happened. They finally got another medicine man in from the north. And he did his ceremony. And that night it rained. And it rained for three or four straight days. And they asked him, why did your ceremony work when all the others didn't? And his response was, oh, the other medicine men prayed for rain. So as soon as you pray for something, it means it's not here. I just prayed rain. And when I took the story and I I explained it back to Jerry, I said, so actually what he did is he became rain. So it wasn't medicine man praying to rain. It was rain praying to rain. So the only thing that existed was rain. So it had to rain. I took this as like a a light bulb moment. So at the time I was out picking blueberries. I picked blueberries uh, at a certain time of the year. And I always, I've learned from the native medicine men that I spent time with to leave an offering and a prayer to the forest and the blueberries. But this time I went out, and I said, wait a minute, why don't I become a blueberry first? I'm going to wait until I'm a blueberry. And then I'm going to make my prayer blueberry to blueberry, not human to blueberry. When I finished that prayer, there were more blueberries than I could possibly pick in like hours. It, it was, it was an obvious change. And there became like a realization, become that which you want to pray or, or pr- what you're praying for to instead become it first. 
And then it's like, it's automatic. It was like, it was something that was so obvious, but it was like, why didn't I know that for 50 years? Why was that not ever shared? With How did you become a blueberry? Because- I want to know. How did you become a blueberry? What I, or, I mean, I'm still in the process of now learning how to do this, but I, I first, I first put myself, I got the, I first felt the color. I closed my eyes first. And I got the color of the blueberry. Then I tried to feel myself rounded. So I, I, I rather than human-like, I got myself rounded. And then I started thinking, well, what, what, what does a blueberry think about? You know, how, do, how does a blueberry think in its day? What, what's going on? I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, I'm noticing the wind and noticing the temperature and noticing the changes of the water and noticing, I'm, I'm noticing the plants and others that are around me. And I kind of, as I got into this space of like, because I've done something like this before, I, I've had these things are called in, in a native tradition, it's called merging with other objects where you, you do certain, a certain shamanic technique where you, you kind of, you and like a leaf or you and a tree stop having separation and there's there's no 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 so it was similar to that except i wasn't using an actual blueberry as a as a model i just so that's what i did and and once i sort of felt like i getting the sense a little bit of what a blueberry is that's when i gave my thanks to them for having grown so well for having been so healthy for the gifts they're going to give me and and my wife over the over the winter time when we need their energies and i, I opened my eyes and we walked out and she's like blueberries everywhere it was, it was incredible. That's a, that's a great story. That's a really, you know, last week we had uh, Craig Simpson on my show, who is um, the guy, he's uh, the creator of Radiant Creators. It's a, it's a website. He does interviews. You yep. probably get on the show. You'd have a really good conversation with him. Uh, okay. And towards the end of our show, we talked about Neville Goddard. Do you know Neville Goddard at all? By any the chance? name I know. Yeah. So we got into Neville Goddard's uh, what we would call spiritual philosophy and right. I think, you know, when you did, when, when you go through Goddard's work and he considered himself to be uh, a Christian mystic who had a, a teacher who was kind of, kind of an Ethiopian guy who knew a lot about the Kabbalah was his teacher. And uh, back then right. we're talking like the twenties, right. That's pretty, pretty unusual. Um, right. But that's in essence, that's what he was saying about his work. Right. He was saying the same thing when it came to what he would call manifestation in prayer. It's it's the exact same process you just went to. And yet he's somebody that had a, I would say, a slightly different belief system. I wouldn't say completely different because he loved William Blake and Blake is a Gnostic. So mm-hmm. there is some there's some Gnostic overtones there. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep thinking that we are that that because, you know, I relate things back to astrology. Cause it's a system. It's something I'm familiar with and I've seen it work. Right. And I, and I keep thinking I'm having a conversation with a Pisces, right. Cause that's your sun sign. And a Pisces is about no boundaries, like merging with everything. So your, your, your impetus to merge with the blueberry for me is like very Piscean. And even mm. your conversation that you're having about life and what happens after life to me is also really Piscean too, because you're talking in astrological terms, you're talking about the 12th house, which is the ruler of Pisces. And the 12th house is the gateway to where we came from, right? You're having a gateway conversation. You even mentioned Robert Monroe in your book, who right. gets into uh, far journeys and even the gateway technology and the hemisync and, and all that stuff. So, you know, I, you know, for me, I, I go back and forth between 
what we would call meaning, non-meaning, system, no system, right? And, and, and again, that's just where I come from. And, and I'd love your take on this because there was a time in my life where I'm like, oh, this non-duality stuff is bullshit. It's bullshit. I'm like, who, who decided that non-duality was the place to go? And I remember I had, I had a, a conversation with a guy who was a pretty well-known, pretty well-known psychic, um, and he was also a philosopher. And I, and I brought it up. I said, why non-duality? I mean, if we're really in tune with everything, can't you be dual and non-dual? Can't you move back and forth between the two? Right? Is it really that kind of the goal here? What, so where, where are you on this dual, dual mm. non-dual thing? Uh, yeah, that was, that's a challenge for me because after I'd had, <clears throat> prior to my experience in 2005, when I was really in the, the, that seven or eight year period that, you know, where I was like intensely practicing, where I was like, like, you know, obsessively practicing, I really wasn't focused much on non-dual anything because I, my focus was uh, trying to understand reality. I was trying to, I was trying to explain what was out there. How, how could I, how could I you know, find ways to determine it's, is it real? Is it not real? Is it tangible? Is it not tangible? Then I had my death experience in the Canyon. And when I came out of the Canyon, because part of that experience was like going into what you might call a void, right? The sort of the clear light of, of Zogchen Buddhism. And when I came out of that, and I now think it's a whole nother discussion topic, which I've never had openly yet. I'm still working on it myself, which I've always seen the death experience that I had in a very positive way. Now I'm starting to see, I was probably manipulated after that experience. I'm not saying the experience itself, I was manipulated, but I might've been too, but I see there were manipulations that happened on me to turn me away from the very things I was working on, on this book and move me more into what you might call non-dual philosophy. And I, I, I moved more into discussing the void, which I still think is, is and avoids a terrible term for it. Uh, emptiness is a better word for it than void. Void makes it sound like it's something, like it's tangible. It's not tangible, right? Well, void um, is also canceled. Focus, it's canceled. You void something, yeah. you cancel it, right? This is the cancellation. Right. right. So, so when, you, when, when you think of emptiness, though, um, you might call it one of the deepest places you can be and still be in the, in the, in Plato's cave. It's, it, it seems non-dual. It seems, uh, it, that's how it seems, right? It seems like it's nothing and everything. It's got all of these things combined, but that's not actually true. There's, there's still something there because there's still an experiencer here, right? There's still an awareness, having an experience of being in emptiness, you might say, or being emptiness or, or being, you know, so, uh, it's it's subtle. So I got caught in it for a number of years. Not that I think it's bad. I think it's actually a very valuable thing. The part of one of the Gnostic uh, texts is um, the Apocryphon of James. And in that, they, they, there's this discussion that's supposed to happen between the deceased and the archons. And one of the most important, uh, this big question and answer will take place. And a lot of your answers are supposed to be, I know I am from what they call the Pleroma, which is this the place outside of which, of which technically our void is a, is what we think of as the void or emptiness is like a mirror of it's not, it's not, it's not the real absolute. It's like a, it's like a mirror in the simulation of it. Uh, but you're supposed to answer these questions. If you don't have the knowledge of, of oneness and absolute and emptiness, 
you're going to get you're going to you're not going to make it past those questions. So it's an important part of the of the process. And I would never tell anyone who's moving into that to, to not do it. The problem becomes if you decide to like put your lawn chair up and decide I'm I'm just going to be in the void and in the emptiness. And that's all I'm going to do and talk about because that's all I need to need to do and talk about. It's, it's as big a trap as anything else. It's a part of, to me now, it's a part of the journey. It's a, it's a useful piece of information, but like everything else, there's always further. There's always more. You, there's always something more you have to keep exploring. And thankfully somehow in the last two or three years, a combination of writing, of writing uh, the exposition book, having to have all of these interviews with all people like yourself and having to really start this. One of the things the interviews have been so good for, for me personally, with, without me knowing it was I had to start explaining myself, explaining what my, whatever my thesis or ideas right. were outwardly to a lot of people. And it really forced me to have to start saying, well, what do I really believe? Yeah. I said that in my book, but do I really believe it? You know, what, do, what do I believe? What, what am I going to stand for? Because one of the things for sure is I want to be honest with people as, as you know, as complete as I can be, I, sure. I might be incorrect or, but I, I don't want people to think he's just making that up. He's just making that to sound good. I want them at least to hear, I don't like what he says, but at least that's his, that, that's what he believes. That's his presentation. And I think all of that really helped me to start churning away a lot of this stuff that I'd been holding on to for a while after my death experience and kind of let that fall and now start being able to say, I just want to see this place again, clearly. I want to see this clearly. I want to see myself clearly. And I want to know for sure why I'm coming into this realm because the, the, the standard answers that were, were given to me for the last 50 plus years actually made no sense when I examined them. And what's what I'm writing about now at least seems to me to be the closest to highly likely probable that I've, that I, that I can come to. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I wrote it at this time, because like you say, I mean, never mind how crazy 2020 was. I mean, we are literally on the edge of like, literally there's a light switch. that's going to be flicked really, really soon. I don't think people, I think so many people are, are in denial, even ones who can kind of see what's going on. They, they really don't understand what, what's going to be coming in the next few months. And it's important not so much to be ready physically. It's important to be ready mentally. It's yeah. important to not, Mr. Park, my, well, the Korean monk I was with for years, always told us that this kind of time was going to come. And the most important thing was, was two things. One was a, a connection to a spirit that if, if, if there was information you were going to need, if you were open to it and you had removed some darkness from your heart, you would get that information. The second thing was, was to uh, not be surprised because if you get surprised, then you are easy to either be in fear or stand still or make poor right. choices but if you're if you're right. if you're not surprised you can at least make really good choices in the moment and those good choices might pay off five years down the road that you know by, by just being clear-headed when you needed to be yeah i think the surprise part is real it's a really good um take it's a really good piece and the reason i i, I think it's a really good piece because you can see this in everyday life. So if you're out in the world and some something happens to you or somebody does something to you that is out of the norm, whatever that is, right? They uh, touch you in a way that's inappropriate. They say something that's disturbing or shocking. Um, right. Most people are completely caught off guard. They're completely surprised. And in most cases, 
they will experience some form of paralysis mm. because, because their reality bobble has been pricked. And when it's pricked, they don't know what to do. So th I think that's a really good point. And I mean, that's something that people can practice every day, which is situational awareness and being in the moment and yeah. knowing, you know, what your surroundings are, who you're with and being present and not checking out because a lot, you know, we have a lot of stuff going on. You, you know, we have, even though we're thinking and uh, talking, thinking and talking about the, the big picture, there are everyday details that happen in people's yeah. lives, relationships, conflicts, all those things. So it's easy to get taken out, but ultimately for me, yeah. our, our job is to handle those, minimize those so right. that the bigger thing takes a higher precedence. And it's more, I, I wouldn't necessarily say on our mind, I'd say top of mind. That's a joke. Yeah. Point. I think some, like, you know, certain people are, uh, for example, those who've been in the wilderness more, particularly like really in the wilderness, like yeah. totally out there. Yeah. If you're not aware of what's going on, you know, you, you might, uh, you might get stocked and, you know, eaten or something. So they, they learn pretty quickly to have a, a, an, even though it doesn't look like they're aware, they're aware. Yeah. They know what's going on around them. For me, a lot of that would have come from uh, my sports days, playing hockey, playing baseball. I mean, especially a hockey player, you had to be aware where everybody was on the ice because just because someone was behind you doesn't mean he's going to come by and put a cross check in the back of your neck so you've got to kind of you've got to almost start feeling out where everybody is what kind of what kind of mood are they hockey's in? intense that there? way hockey's very yeah, intense so, that way. right so it's actually it's it's in a sense it is a learning curve for awareness because if, if you if you let your awareness down or like you say if you allow yourself to be that's that's when you get hurt you get hurt because you get surprised. It's, it's not so much that somebody hits you really hard. I've, I've been hit with some pretty heavy checks, you know, but if you know they're coming, you, you, you prepare yourself in a certain way of how to handle it. It might look bad for the, in, in the audience, but you know, just a good hit. Right. But if you're, if, if I'm not, if I'm not about ready for it, if I don't think it's going to happen, if I, if my attention is wandered, you're going to get, you're going to be in big trouble. And so that was something you had to learn very, very uh, early was you need to be aware of what's going on all the time. Yeah. Um, let me throw out a phrase for you. Do as thou will. Do as thou will. Crowley, many consider it to be the, the great arch magician, uh, the Antichrist. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of different, mm -hmm. a lot of different um, images and personifications of Crowley. But what do you think he really right. meant by that phrase, do as thou will? Oh, I, I don't know. I can't figure what somebody else meant by something, right? Um, I do know this, or at least I can share my own thoughts and feelings on this idea of what you might call will or um, on one level, we have, we do have a, a bit of, and I don't like to call it co-creative ability. I hate using that word, but we, we have a, we have the ability to influence our environment in certain ways. That's obvious. Everybody has had those experiences where we've done certain things and then things have happened around us, manifested, things have been different. So we know we have an impact. The issue I think starts to become as, as people decide, I'm going to fix the world, that there's something wrong with the world and I'm going to fix it. And they start trying to play these manifestation games, which have had success in a small scale to the planet. Like we've had people meditating for peace for 
how long has this been for fixing the world for whatever, how many people have gone out there to whatever it is they're going to do. And I know people can say, oh, well, there hasn't been a major war in 50 years. So, so maybe the meditating for peace really did work. Um, well, tell that to the people in Palestine, tell that to the people in, you know, in a lot of places all yeah, over man, the world. Iraq, who are living in Afghanistan, every day. Syria, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I know. So I, I think the issue becomes when it comes to will is when you, when you first of all, remove as much ego as you can from it. So it's, it's not so much about what's going to make me important. It's just what's valuable in my experience, what's valuable in my, in my path, what's valuable in my journey, what's valuable for those who are close to me, uh, my close family members and my friends. But I think as soon as you start going, as soon, see, this is the problem. We go back to where we started at the beginning. Why is this creation even here? So if you believe, if you've come to believe that the creation is here, that a loving God uh, made this place exactly the way it's supposed to be, and obviously God got something wrong, so needs you to go out and fix it, then of course, you're going to put all of your energy into trying to fix God's mistake, you might say. As soon as you see this as a realm designed to, as a, as a equivalent of a farm, that it's only here to steal energy, then right away, well, I'm not going to fix that. Like it's, it's never going to get, it's never going to, it might change. It might, it might, it might alter in different periods of time, but it always has the same function. I can't change the function of the dream, but I've come to see, I can, I can change my um, connection to it. I can change the way I act and interact in this place. And as long as I'm not throwing all my energy into fixing it, if I'm putting that energy on understanding it and moving myself into deeper and deeper realms of my true self, now my, my energy is not being wasted. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think it, it makes sense. Um, I have a bit bit of a different take on will, uh, but but it's it's a it's it's not really all that material to our discussion. Um, I wanted to add, let's talk about some specifics. By the way, in case people are wondering, I'm having Japan Sencha tea. It's a oh. very nice, uh, smooth uh, tea that kind of. It's like got the green tea, so it gives you a bit of energy, but I also find it keeps me calm at the same time. So I get kind of both from this green tea. In case people are wondering, I like Sencha. Sencha's got that's got a nice, uh, nice flavor to it. Is that the one that's mm. roasted? Is that the roasted one? It's got Ooh, a little smoky, know. little smoky kind of thing going on there. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Somebody, maybe somebody in the comments can tell us. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about some some specifics here. You and I, when we had a chat a few weeks back, we, we mentioned Wes Penray and some of okay. Wes Penray's work on this subject and topic. And one of the ideas is that when you leave the body, that these arconic beings are waiting for you and they do a, a scan very quickly of your life experience and then they're able to create a hologram that represents somebody from your past, like your father, maybe a priest that you used to go to the church with or whatever, right? And then you begin to have a moment of trust with this person. Then they have the review. There's that. Then there are people who theoretically understand that that's not real. And then they try to get through what we would call the, the space fence. And some people have actually seen the space fence in the sky. Like there have been, it's come up on more than one occasion with, with a number number of people, many people. And then the idea with the space fence is that if you get that far, 
you'll get electrocuted, right? Like it's almost a given. It's like, it's like the, the perimeter in, in the Truman show, but instead of breaking through and going to another reality, which you talk about in your book, you, you get zapped. You're going to get, you're going to get the mind wipe anyway, right? Theoretically, you're either going to get the mind wipe the nice way, or you're going to try to get out of the space fence and you're going to get caught in this electrical grid and it'll fry and he'll throw you back into the, into the spin recycle mode. That said, there are people who believe that there are holes through the space fence, right? That this is the way out ultimately, that you leave the realm. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess we, we want to go to two areas of, of uh, what you brought up. And I guess the first would be this idea of um, beings reading one's mind and presenting what wants to be presented. <clears throat> so this takes us into the, into the realm of the near-death experience, which is one of the things that's very helpful um, to researchers like me and others who are doing this. Now, when most people hear of a near-death experience, of course, there's standard things. That, like 85% of them tend to be the same. It's white light, tunnel, maybe a bridge, life review, uh, Jesus, dead grandma, beings of light, feelings of love, wonderful peacefulness. Um, and then usually being told, it's not your time yet. You have to go back. Uh, you've got more work to do. You have a mission. Of course, they're never told what the work is, what the mission is. But, oh, yeah, mission got to go back. Back they come. You often against their will. The, the, the person who talks about these say they, 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 they didn't want to come back, but they felt forced. But anyway, the person comes back and generally they've transformed. They have literally, they become kinder, nicer. They've seen the way they live and they make changes. Uh, many medicine people and healers, that's how they become. That's how they've got, their, in a sense, their healing power. It sounds fantastic. How could I possibly be against that? Problem is that might be a look to the 15% of near-death experiences that aren't like that at all. And I get the sense they went a little further that these were on the, on the base level on the, we don't want to scare this person too much. We, we want good marketing for all the others who are dying. We want them going to the light. So one of the things that these other near-death experiences, these are in, this is in chapter nine that I share some of these um, that I've, I found is that we, yes, like you say, one of the things that tends to happen is what is presented to you is what you want to see. So, of course, normally a person will die. I want to see my dead, my dead mom. I want to see my dead dog. I want to see my dead uh, whatever. And that's what manifests. Or some they will want to see a religious figure or some. And that's what gets presented. And like you say, a few start asking, wait a minute, something's wrong. Show me who you really are. And then often that fades away. And that's when they see some sort of alien type demonic being. So we have this first instance of how do we know the angelic wonderful being is an angelic wonderful being this this leads to um a, a star trek episode that i mentioned uh, on, on a video i did and in my book uh it's star trek voyager the episode is called coda and in it janeway is in the process of dying and this alien being disguises himself as her father trying to get her to go into the light with him and the whole episode is this gameplay of her trying to understand you're not my father. And she comes to this giant realization. Oh, you need me to agree. This is one of the most important things. You need me to agree to go. And when we start to recognize that this is an, an unbelievable message for us, we, on some level, we agreed 
We agreed to this life. We agreed to what's happening to us. We agreed to so many things that we don't remember agreeing to. And so when we look at this idea of contracts and agreements, that's a big side of it. So we have that first part. Then we've got the second part you brought up with the West, West Penry material, which I'm 50-50 on it. I, I, you know, I, I, there's things in there that are interesting. There's things in there that I'm not so sure about. So this one that he talks about, yes, this idea of like a net, an actual grid, a grid that you see in the movie uh, Soul from 2020, where same thing, the Will Smith character and some other jump, try to jump off the bridge when they're dying and they hit this thing and they get sort of like electrocuted. Uh, symbolically, if you, if, you, if you believe that, then symbolically what we call the Van Allen belt might be this type of grid, right? This, this really heat energy structure that a material form can't get through. Um, that being said, I don't think you have to wait to die to exit the cave, to exit the matrix. Probably there, it's, it's um, if you're ready for it, you can navigate it perhaps a little easier because you're not dealing with a material form. You're, you're right in the astral form, but the astral form has its own uh, tricks and traps to it. I think you can do it in the material. And there might have been groups of people in the past, like the Maya and some others, some other ancient cultures who just literally disappeared and we don't know what happened to them. They might have, they might have as a group found the exit hole you might say, and just decided we're done. So I think it's possible, but I think exiting uh, sort of in the way Penray's talking about it, which, which can be done even from the material worm, seeing these, these grids, that requires, I think, a tremendous amount of work. And as I well, we haven't got to that last chapter yet, I now think that Carlos Castaneda's last book, Active Side of Infinity, which I thought was one book entirely when I read it, I now think it's all a book about the after-death realms, which he calls the active side of infinity, and our preparations for dealing with it. And I think we can deal with that realm, not just learn to deal with it while still alive in the material. I think we can actually navigate it. And, and uh, how somebody described it, this George guy uh, popping out of the matrix. Um, but I don't know how to do that. I'm still working on it, but I think it's possible. Did I answer your question at all there? I, I, A little bit. A little bit. I think you answered it to the to the best of your knowledge, which is well, what you know anybody could ask for. Yeah. Um, okay. So another philosophical question here. Uh, again, how do we know that if we exit the matrix or we exit uh, the realm of the demiurge, the AI construct, that there isn't just another AI construct beyond that? Right. How do we know that? Right. I mean, we don't, we don't. Right. Yeah. We don't, but all we can do is at least begin to at least somehow, I think at least this is me personally speaking, right. Not what anybody else should or shouldn't do, but for me personally, getting to the point where saying, well, I'm done with, there may be, maybe there's other constructs, maybe there's other layers, but I'm done with this one. This one, I agree with I've you. seen I agree with you suffering. So I'm, yeah. yeah. So I'm, so I'm, I, I'm willing to take my chances in the next one. Uh, you know, maybe uh, the, the leaf will get out of the one whirlpool and there'll be another whirlpool that gets trapped a little further on. Okay, but it's not going to be this one. And I know I've been in this one a long time. Mm -hmm. This is this is not my first go around here. Right. I know that. Yeah. And um, I've had enough. I've had enough personal trauma and suffering in this realm, as you know, some of it. I've mm -hmm. seen enough of the people around me. I've read enough people around me and I'm just like, uh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm done with this place. And 
unfortunately, well, the fortunate part of the last two years and what's coming is, you know, nobody wants to wake up when things are wonderful and nice. But once things, once you start having a nightmare, that's when you want to wake up. Yes. And unfortunately, okay. our realm is starting to get more nightmarish. And the reason I think that is, is because I think whatever, when we were talking about the West Henry stuff, I think there is a portal open right now, you might say, I think there, the, the, the exit, the exit, if there is an actual physical opening or, or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, metaphorical opening, I think it's as large as it's ever been right now. I think the opportunity to to move on to the next stage of journeys, even if it's to another AI system, it's, it's available right now. We, we can do it. And I think a lot of what's going on and part of what this great reset really is, is restructuring the whole realm at the time when this is most open so that when it starts to reclose again, which is probably on some sort of astronomical cycle that, like you say, those in, in the secret societies know, they know the cycle. So they know when it's going to be open and when they need to perform their new reset. And once the reset is finished, then all at the same time, this is closed in. It's going to be very, very hard to leave again. And we're back to where we were before. So I think, I think as, as difficult and nightmarish as it's been for people, and it's been hard. A lot of people have had really difficult times the last couple of years, never mind before that, really difficult last few years. And unfortunately, it's probably going to get more so. Keep reminding yourself, there might be a doorway open. I just don't see it yet. So don't get, don't, don't allow yourself to get sunk in the, um, in the potential nightmare stuff, keep seeing they're doing that. They're pro they're potentially doing all this to us because there is a huge opportunity. See if you can find the opportunity and take the opportunity rather than focus on the, the, the material realm. That would be, I think what we might be seeing right now. Right. Some people would hear this and they would say, well, why, why even be here? Like why, why even be here? And, and by the way, I know a number of people who have either contemplated suicide on a uh, consistent basis or it's crossed their minds more than once. Um, I've yep. never, I've never contemplated suicide. Uh, I have. Well, yeah. I, well, I have seriously. Yeah. yeah. But, and I understand why people would. Right. And we have a lot of baggage around this idea of committing suicide. You know, we have people who have these near-death experiences who committed suicide. And what awaited them on the other side was, according to them, hellish, right? Hellish. Now, do you think that they're being told or they're experiencing this hellish reality so that they go back and tell people not to commit suicide? Do you think it's another form of marketing? Or, or why not? Why not just consciously say, fuck this. I'm going to curvorkey this thing out. I'm done. Like I say, I, I was at that point myself. Problem, or, or the reason I would say maybe that's not the best choice is because it's, to me, it's all about being as prepared as possible. So not that I need to keep living here, not that I need to keep living for another day or week or year or anything else, but I want to use the days now that I can see that my, my goal, my focus is because it, Generally, the person who commits suicide is committing suicide because they hate their life. My life is so painful. I want to stop it. Right. But they feel that, well, then once I get to the after death realm, it'll be better. 
But if my, if my theory is correct, and all that's going to happen is you're going to go through uh, another set of deceptions, lies, life review, and you're going to be right back in here again in a new body and maybe even in a worse situation, that doesn't sound like a good option then because you're not preparing. If you really feel, because the positive part of the person who's thinking about it, like I did 20 or whatever it was, 25 years ago was, okay, this is a realm that's not here to this is not a good place. This is not a good place. If there really was a loving creator, God, they could make this completely different. Never mind how humans are, the natural, how nature is, how, I mean, we're as beautiful as things are. It's a slaughterhouse, Yeah, you know? And, yeah. And, I agree and, with uh, you hundred percent. Yeah. So it's not, it's not necessarily as loving as, and beautiful as we like to perceive it. It has these elements to it, but so the, the, the thing for me then is if once you have your intention, whatever that intention is, so my intention is to go, I'm, I'm ready to exit the cave. I'm ready to go beyond all this realm. I'm also going to do my best to be as prepared as possible because I know now how many tricks and deceptions and layers of things we've been fooled with. Like, so why are we here? I'm here because I got tricked. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a hundred percent certain of that. I, as in my deepest part of my essence, got tricked into this realm. How it got tricked, I'm not sure. But something, I got tempted somehow, and I came, I came in here, and, and it's like I kept sinking deeper and deeper into matter, and it's really tough, like quicksand. It's, it's almost impossible to sneak yourself out. But now that I'm really wanting to get out, I know that just dying right now unprepared will not, will not create the end result. It'll just recycle me right back in here again, and potentially, if, it, if we're going in linear time, it means I'm, I'm going to be recycled into the metaverse not interested. So, so therefore, how can I use the time I have, even if it's painful, even if I don't like it, even if it's harsh, I can use that as a driving force to say, then how can I learn to be as prepared as possible to reach a place that's not this realm that I'll actually, like, this is for people out there who maybe don't believe my theory specifically, but at least if, if you believe there's some other place better to go how can you how can you be so prepared and ready that when the time does come you're able to navigate to get to the place you want to go so that would be my thing is is use the time you have effectively don't think just because you're dead you're going to know more than you know when you're alive again the indication also seems to be you don't you tend to know about as much as you knew even though people try to say in the after death realm, all knowledge was available to me. Everything was available. I, I could know any, everything. You know, what did you know? What did you learn? I don't remember. Well, what good was it, right? So use what you have now, recognize your own power. And even though the pain is deep and potentially, and the suffering is deep, use it again, use it to your advantage in preparation to just that would be, again, this would be I think to end it early ends yeah it ends the suffering here, but it might not end the cycle of suffering, and that's what you would really want is to end all of it completely. How do we define power in the context of what you just shared? When you say use all of your power, what does that mean? I would say to it uh, by power, I'm kind of referring to. Um, an inner, an inner guidance, an inner strength, an inner intuitive knowing, um, an inner intention. Maybe that's a good word. An inner, in, and so it kind of links to will what we were talking about before. 
but not to manifest anything externally. We're just using that intention of uh, a roadway that, that the intention says, this is the road I want to walk on and nothing's going to take me off the road. Nothing is going to, nothing's, uh, what's that line from Moby Dick? Swerve me, ye cannot swerve me, else you will be, you know, I can't remember exactly, but that was, it was swerve me, ye cannot swerve me. You know, Captain Ahab was, he was on his road and he was going to walk it because the white whale is his mind, right? The white whale is the egoic mind. So he's going to battle that whale, however long it takes to overcome his egoic self. So whatever our pathway is, I think power is the intention that we're going to walk it. We might change it later on. We might realize I need to walk something else. But that intention is just when I when I first started this after my near death, after my um, my almost wanting to have su- commit suicide and got, and got out of it with the Egyptian uh, TV show that we talked about uh, before um, on, on other talks. My my focus on studying ancient Egypt was so strong. There's nothing that could pull me away from that. It didn't matter how good something looked. If my if my answer was my question was, is this going to help me learn ancient Egypt? No. Well, I'm not interested. Right. Just I'm just not interested. And that to me is power. The power comes from this the strength of commitment and the commitment of of knowing where you want to go and what you want to do. And if you walk that commitment, you'll just the, the power what we're calling power just starts to come to you. If you don't if you don't have a pathway that you're walking everything's already gets scattered. And so nothing tends to get built. Right. This is a really interesting time to theoretically be alive because these ideas are starting to show up in other areas, not just with your book, not just uh, the show today, but other people. And um, some people follow up Matt over at quantum of conscience And he's been talking about similar ideas, although he may not have the same kinds of models that you have, but he's, he's coming at it in his own way, right? We're looking at the big picture. We're looking at where we've been. We're looking at how this world gets influenced, who it gets influenced by. What do we do? How how do we, how do we nav through it? I was watching, uh, I don't know if you know this guy. Some people do. His name is Joe Imbriano, goes by the name of the Fullerton Informer. And he's been mm-hmm. on he's been on the truth train for a while. He's, a, he's an interesting character. He comes from a science background. He's an ex-Catholic. He's a born-again Christian. And he does all of his live streams from his car. His car. Right. Okay. He dri- he drives around yeah. Fullerton in his car. And he's he's got it. Like he's on it. He knows, he knows what's happening, right? He's 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 doing the work to, to see the big picture. And he's talking about, uh, and this is just a bit of a side story, but he's talking about the, the upcoming fake alien invasion, right? He says, this is what's happening. This is where they're going to bring this thing. Be ready for it, right? And I've talked about it because that's every time they need a, a new distraction, trauma, and spectacle, it's got to get bigger, be bigger than the last one. Right? It's got to have more shock, shock and awe than the previous right. one. But that's not really what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is his model of the world, and he's a Christian, and he's a he's a flat earther, and that is, uh, you know, we've got we've got the we've got the dome, uh, we have the firmament, um, we have the luminaries beyond the firmament, and those luminaries, according to him, they're they're angelic beings in heaven waiting for us to to come home, right? So he, he's in lockstep with everything 
that you're talking about to some degree, what Matt is talking about with other people, but his model is very different, right? He believes in a loving God. He believes in a loving savior. He believes that unless you lock onto that, and by the way, he's not a dispensationalist. So he's not going to go into the rapture party, right? Unless you have that thing, you're not going to get through it. You know? So it, it, these things are, they're popping up all over the place. The discussions are happening. The models may be different, but we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a, like we say, all of us are just trying to figure out as best we can from what we see and bringing pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together on this. Right. And every little piece will fit together, but we're in a zeitgeist with this. Like you could almost follow this over the last about 20 years, right? First was the flat earth. That kind of was an original zeitgeist for a while. And then it sort of, it almost became religious and, and became very intense. And just when that happened, all of a sudden it broke out and became the Mandela effect. And that all of a sudden was the big thing for, for a few years. Then it became the Tartaria mud flood thing. And all of a sudden that was the new, almost like it just sprung up and everybody was interested in talking about it. And now I'm starting to notice, not that this material hasn't been around for a while. It's been around for 30, 40 years. People have been talking about this even longer, right? But all of a sudden in the last two or three, like you say, all of a sudden, more and more is starting to rise up. More and more is coming. And even though I looked into this material 20 years ago, it's only been in the last couple that for some reason I got hit by the zeitgeist myself. Right. So yeah, something is happening in a lot of places where even people that you think you're kind of surprised they're, they're bringing up this, this area of discussion, but they're bringing it up. And I think it's because the ideas of the 1980s and the 90s where everything is wonderful and if you just set your mind to it, you can create anything you want. Boy, everything is everything is wonderful if you want it to be. The last two years to show people, uh-oh, that model, that model doesn't work anymore. We, we're not living, we're not, if that world existed, it's gone. It's gone. Look, the, whatever thing we're in now is not that. And all of those old ideas of, you might say, how to navigate in this uh, place spiritually, have gone. It's something Bart Marshall and I talked about in one of our talks a long time ago was that we're, we're now literally building a brand new spiritual tradition for the next maybe thousand years in this place, because the world is changed. This realm is changing so greatly. All the old ways are not going to work. And we are at the cusp of actually starting to build a whole new way of doing things, which is also kind of exciting, but it's also kind of, you know, scary because you start to realize the old things don't really work anymore. And we don't really know what will work because we're not really sure what this is going to become. But we're also in a sense of like, uh, we're explorers and those of us right now. And I think that's kind of the zeitgeist feeling. We're, we're exploring a, a ways to interact with a completely new realm. And we have to be okay with that to let the old stuff go and find what the new stuff is going to be. Right. Yeah. You, you actually point that out pretty early on in your book and, and clearly delineate these phases from flat earth to up to the, to uh, Tartaria and now having, <clears throat> having the, uh, the post-life uh, discussion. The other thing you bring up again mm -hmm. in those first three chapters, which I, I totally commend you on, and it was something that I really opened my eyes back in 2010 and 2011, are the spiritual teachers that made their bank you know, during the eighties and the nineties and even the early part of the two thousands. And, and uh, they got, they got on my radar really quickly right after 2009. 
and we had this just massive, massive housing crash and the debt and everything that went along with it. I'm like, okay, where are you? Where are you? You're, you're nowhere to be found. You have, you have no commentary on any of this. Uh, no Oprah, uh, no uh, Marianne Williamson, uh, no Barbara Marks Hubbard, no Tony Robbins, no Deepak Chopra. You know, our so-called spiritual leaders were mute, absolutely mute. And so they were, they were an object of my scorn and derision for a while. And moving forward, you know, we go to uh, 2020. Where are they? Where are they? AWOL, right? MIA. The ones talking about the ones who are saying, I'm going to lead you to ultimate freedom, but they're the ones who are fine getting rid of relative freedom. That's right. not someone I'm going to trust to take me to true. If, if, you're, if you're going to deal with absolute freedom, then you better be able to deal with relative freedom too. And you better have the courage to be able to stand up and talk about when that's, when that's, when that's being lost. And so as far as I'm concerned, 98% of them showed their true colors. And that means if you can't see through like the most obvious lie in recent human history, can we trust anything they've said up to this point? Oh, and I'm not sure. And you even have somebody like Marianne Williamson running for president. She's running for president, right? That was her thing. She's running for president. She has a platform. She's on debates. Did she talk about any of these things? Maybe a little bit, but she certainly didn't use the opportunity to advance the discussion all that much. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's a really important piece is, uh, these yeah. these these people have served their purpose, whatever their purpose is, uh, and it, it's a and it's not of- that again. All of that stuff is bad. I'm not I'm not like labeling certain spiritual. No, there's things that there are things that Tony bad. Robbins I mean, you I mean, can learn. You can learn yeah. some stuff from Tony. Yeah, Robbins. I'm making sure that people know that there's there there is there's value in it. The problem is when you start thinking that's all you need that they have the whole package when they've maybe got this much of the package, yet people treat them like they've got this. And they wind up giving away their, they're giving away their power, giving away their authority to someone outside themselves, rather than seeing what does somebody know that's useful for me right now. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Move on to who knows more, who knows more than them, who knows more than them, who knows more than them. And unfortunately, though, in this one here and what we've just gone through in the last two years, we're starting to see a lot of people that people put a lot of a lot of these teachers that people put a lot of trust in that maybe gave them, oh, maybe they're level four. We're starting to see, man, they're kindergarten. They're they're, they're kindergarten level. There's still something you can learn, but it's pretty minor. All right. So let's say these archons, the demiurges, have their... um, minions their henchmen on earth now matt matt from quantum of conscience quantum of conscience he believes that there's no uh people sitting around tables with cigars smoking and making plants okay that it all just kind of happens randomly due to chaos i would disagree with him with that uh, but that's just my opinion that said let's talk about those people because they're they're obviously carrying something out right this goes back to an earlier part of our discussion where their possible agreement is to keep this thing going. But they are engaged in engineering the realm. Yeah. Now, why, what would happen? And this is not about making things better, by the way. But what would happen 
if we eliminated yeah, but it's, about, it's about understanding yeah but what would happen if we eliminated the engineers of the realm could the realm operate in the same way the, we we have to remember we're on so many this is a hierarchical system i understand it's a hierarchical uh construct so what we think of are the ones who are sitting around making decisions really aren't they're making decisions at the level that they're allowed to make decisions the decisions come from above them and they get passed down the level above them and above them so even if you eliminate the ones that you see you just eliminate the one layer there'll just be a new layer that gets put in you know it might take a few years short term for a few for three or four or five or ten years things might be a little different but it won't take long for it all to be restructured again you know because right. it's not you have to go right to the right to the top of the whole thing this is where that newsbenders program that I uh, from that 1966. I you know, I I didn't watch that. I'd like to watch that. I I read about it and I I, I kept reading. You want to get into that a little bit? Please, please do. Please get. It'll just blow your mind. And the end result of that entire 30 minute BBC program is that it looked like. It was, you would think that the, the person who was there running the newspaper, who's saying, we create the news, we're the ones who decide what it's going to be in the future, but then he let it slip. Well, actually, it's not me, you know, it's the computer upstairs. The computer upstairs makes the decisions and tells it to me. So already in 1968, in this explosive 30-minute program, they were saying that the decisions being made in our realm are not being made by humans. They're being made already by some form of AI. And now you move that 50 plus years in the future. How, how total is the, must the AI system, what we think AI is from the world we think we know, the real AI is like a thousand times beyond what we think. So for me, that's why I don't think the, 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 the what we call, the, what Matt calls minions, they're making decisions at times on what they can make decisions on but literally it's all coming top down and it's coming, it's coming directly from AI. AI is AI has been in charge of the show for a long, long time. And that's another thing we have to understand that we're not, we're not battling supposed people in positions of, of power. We're battling in a sense, not battling bad word, spiritual war. The spiritual war is the whole construct. And the best way. I got, I'm just going to, since I brought that up, I just want to get this, I wrote it down so that I'm, so I say it correctly. Um, so, because people talk about, well, if we're in a spiritual war, what do we do? How do you handle a spiritual war, right? And it reminds, I think the best answer there is the, the, the movie from 1983. What was that called? Um, the one that had the, the, the computer, the Whopper computer in it, that was, that was the nuclear the nuclear war games is that, war I think games. that was the name yeah, of the Matthew Broderick. Games. Yeah. Right. Right. Where the computer, the AI began to realize that it, its job was to win. And so it was started seeing the best way to win its nuclear war games that it was testing itself on was to actually launch was to actually was to manifest it for real. So what Matthew Broderick did in the movie was teach the computer tic-tac-toe. So the computer, a game that, can, you know, you, you can never, if you play it properly, you can't win. Right. So right. the computer just attempted to learn tic-tac-toe and it finally near the end of, at the end of the movie just decided to shut itself down and said, the only winning move in this game is not to play. Mm -hmm. And there's your answer of, I think, for dealing with the realm itself, we don't fix the realm. We realize what's going on and we don't play it. Mm -hmm. We just we, we choose to unplug from 
the entire game completely, would the game be able to continue? The game needs it. The game needs the pawns. The chess game needs the pawns working at the start of the game. If all the pawns are gone and everything on all the, the rooks and the knights and the bishops are all gone and they're, you know, do you have a game? You know, do you have a game anymore? Uh, so to me, that, that's a very telling piece of information to where we might be, which is this idea of the way, the way we win where we are is not to play, to see through to see through all of the systems that are going on and to be able to, to be able to just decide what we want to do in the moment, given what the external world is providing us at any one time. Uh, at least that's how I'm trying to live now. It's trying to just, I, I, for a long time, could easily focus. It's important to know what's going on. It's important to catch everything. It's important not to be fooled. But if you sink too deeply in it, then it's got you. Then it's got you. Right, right. Um, yeah. So let me ask you a question. If you could become a blueberry and you, you could experience the, the bounty and the abundance of the blueberry spirit in your garden, mm -hmm. could you do the same thing with the AI? Could you become the AI? I don't know. I would want to do that because I, that would, that would put me directly into the entire system completely. Maybe that's a good idea. I would prefer to perhaps be, I would perhaps try to then be again, because my focus isn't to be the AI. My focus is to be, you might say the total good or the absolute, or, you know, you might say reunited with the, father, however you want to say that. So then I would try to say, can I be that? Can I, can I, can I be that and see what happens externally by, by, um, by being in that, in that space? Um, would there be some merit to learning and understanding the AI from the inside out? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, in Wizard of Oz, all they needed to do was pull the curtain back and see who was who and what was running uh, the, the the reality. They didn't need to know everything that it did, right? right so right. It, it could just, I could see it that it, on one level, it, it could be useful, but then it, like anything else, it could become a trap because then we want to understand it completely. We want to figure out how it all works. We want to, we want to write 10 books on it. We want to, you know, um, I think that's one of these things of knowing when is it, what, what is, what is right to research and, and dig into? What is it? I, what is it you're learning? And then when is it time to stop? Right. When is it time to, I don't need to know more than that. That's kind of why I stopped my historical research. Right? People have asked me so many times, what, why aren't you doing historical videos anymore? What they were getting your highest numbers. You were getting 30, 40,000 people watching these videos. Why did you stop? Because, well, I learned what I needed to learn. Sure. I learned that history is a lie. And to just continue it, all I'm going to learn is I'm just going to see more lies. That's not going to help me personally. To right. others, that's still valuable who maybe don't know that. But once you get, once I got to that point, it's like, okay, it's time to put my energy somewhere else. And so I think we have to also always be cautious that there's always that road that can take our attention and take and distract us again and again and again and again it's not just 
It's not just beautiful things. It's all sorts of things that can distract us for long periods of time. So we have to be really, like you say, aware and focused of what am I doing and why am I doing it? So we're, we're, we're uh, rounding things up here. We're coming to our second hour and I'm very conscious and aware of your time. And I really appreciate your being here. There's a couple more questions Thanks. I'd like to ask you. Sure. And these come into the personal realm a little bit. Okay. Do you, do you have a belief or faith or knowing in what we would call God? It's a two-part question. And the second part is, do you think that that thing has an interest in us and wants us to break out of this thing that we're in? Okay. Do I think there's a thing we call God? Yes. Is that thing interested in me? Yes. What is that thing interested in me? Using my energy and driving it back in the system and making me as deceptive and suffering and as difficult as possible. So the God the you're talking about that, is the demiurge. You're, you're right. Okay. Yeah. So, so to me, everything that has to do with this realm or even the spiritual realm now, even the astral realm, it's still linked in one way or another to the demiurge. Now, that doesn't mean the demiurge sometimes doesn't give good things and positive things and helpful things, but it's still doing it for its own purpose. There is, though, something, and I don't like to use the word God, right. so I'll just call it absolute so that it's, it's something that's undescribable. Uh, and I would say, all I would say, it's like, it would be like, of course, I had a, I had a psychopathic father, but let's pretend I had an actual caring father for the sake of this conversation. This would be like a caring father who I'm out late at night and mom and dad just, oh, I just want him to get home soon. He's, he's out too late. That's all. That's what I feel the, the true absolute really is. It's just, it knows, it knows I got tricked. It knows I left home and it's just, it's waiting patiently for me to come back and is like going to just, it's just going to be welcoming. Good to have you back. And we'll and kind of like, we'll go on with our day. So but while I'm in here, yeah. I know that everything might not, not is, but might even if it looks good for me, might be a deception. And now I'm, I'm, ta I'm tagging that in from my own personal life experience when I realize how many times I've been manipulated by parasitic or other type of entities when I didn't think I was at the time. So you've used the word good twice in the last minute. Use it earlier in our conversation. And there's a striking resemblance to the word good and God. Yes. Right. So can you make the leap to God? Uh, again, it's semantics, right? But I'm trying to it's get to something here. I'm trying because you've used the word and you've you placed you placed kind of a, a moral and spiritual value on it, right? So if that exists, then something has to be connected to that thing. And maybe it's the demiurge, yeah, think, yeah. or maybe it's something beyond the demiurge. Because yeah, something I, had, I, to, like something say, had still, to create the yeah. demiurge. Something had to create the demiurge, theoretically. Well, no, the, well, no, the demiurge, according to Gnostics, Gnostics, right? The demiurge was the demiurge was Sophia attempting to create on her own without a male counterpart that she wanted to, she wanted to create on her own, uh, which couldn't happen. And this was more like an abortion, um, an aborted uh, thing that, that took life, that didn't die, took life. That's the demiurge. Right. Right. And then, so the demiurge was never really a life form. So it, it's a, it, it, you can see that right away, how it's like a computer AI right from the get-go. So it's like, 
it was it was it was a it was a creation but it was a it was not a, it was not a proper whole creation it was it was uh in, it was incomplete and so from that in, and then from the incompleteness this is the story again i can't know for sure if it's true or not right, it just right. sounds interesting is that this demiurge became very jealous of the true the the true absolute god and wanted to wanted to create its own realm but couldn't actually create this was interesting couldn't create didn't know how to so it copied it took this other realm and started making copies of it so that's very interesting because it also means if that's if that's true let's pretend that it is for the sake of our conversation then our realm as we know it is not just is not just sort of thrown up by magic fairy dust it's a copy of something else so it's also interesting every time we are studying this realm we're actually really learning something potentially about the mirror opposite of it which is outside the cave. So it's very interesting that outside the cave might be copied and mirrored inside the cave. That's an so, interesting way of thinking of things. So so you're saying since the, the world is a copy, what you're really saying is that it's a Chinese production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, kind I'm of. being half joking, joking around this, yeah. but I'm also kind yeah. of serious, right? Because yeah. the Chinese are known for copying. That's what they do. They are not, you know, outside of maybe spaghetti and gunpowder, um, the Tao Te Ching and, uh, you know, some, some form of uh, tantric sex model, which are all very kind of interesting in their own way, right? As a culture, they're known for taking other things and copying them, right? And what is the, do- what is the dominant paradigm right now on the planet or trying to emerge it's it's the chinese paradigm it's it's the copy paradigm it's take we'll take this idea we won't really do anything you know interesting or new with it but we'll copy it right so we're actually living in some ways with a version of what you're talking about yeah kind of like sort of like a layer within the layer of it that's it's a good way of looking at it because that seems to be what those who are running this reality want. They want the exact same system all over the world, run the exact same way, the exact same sets of controls, the exact same everything, right? Uh, as opposed to even 50 years ago, every place you went in the world was quite different. That's There's right. a big difference. Now we're starting to see, and it already began with the influx of <clears throat> Western ideas and McDonald's and Starbucks all over the world. And slowly, 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 it started to get harder and harder to start noticing, where am I? What, what, what country am I even in? And, right. and you're seeing that more and more and more and more, this idea of let's make it the same. And if if you're a computer, that would make sense, right? The, 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 the more things you have that are running on, on uh, smaller possibilities, smaller pathways, smaller choices, that's easier for the system power-wise. If you've got a million different things with a million, with 10 million different options, that's a lot of possible pathways that the computer has to keep accessing and running. And, and it needs a huge uh, hard drive, you might say, to keep all that information. If you, if you, the more you tighten that, in, this makes sense again, when we're talking about reset. Right. When people realize this reset is about energy, that's what it's really about. I mean, energy, not from oil and gas. I mean, like energy of like the realm of the universe. That's what this is about. And it would make sense. The more you can compact the entire uh, dream reality, well, the less 
hard drive space you need, so the less power you need to operate. Sure. It's also an interesting flip side. If you think about it as power with this recent, that's the, the Robert Monroe stuff. So for those of you who want to pick up the, my book and, and read through it, it's in chapter three. And I talk about loose and resets. And But if we're thinking about energy, it makes sense that if let's, and if, if the theory is correct, that we are the same as farm animals, we're here to be harvested for energy. That's our number one reason for being here. Then the, if the AI, if the computer is here and we're here, there's a distance between us. So there's always going to be energy loss automatically between us and the system. Well, it would make sense if, if you need more power, hook the human directly into the computer itself. Then there's no energy loss when the energy is being drained out. There's no, there's no loss here. It's just once you're in, once you're connected in the system, it's, there's no loss. It's just direct. So it would almost make sense to explain what kind of is going on if we become linked to AI directly, linked to the, the system directly, less energy loss for the system. Right. So if you use the, uh, the human battery uh, as the uh, Luche model uh, with, uh, we'll just say for the sake of argument, even though I don't believe in the number, 7 billion people, let's say there's 7 billion people on the planet. Yeah. That's a lot of Luche, theoretically, right? And then right. the idea would be to again, eliminate 80% of those people. I mean, that's kind of the stated goal. They've been really open about it. Um, so you would think that by doing that, they would be eliminating 80% of their power supply, but the 20% that's left over linked directly in to the new thing becomes way more, so they don't need the 7 billion people right. or whatever that number is. Right. And you, and you, and they would get, because it seems like when a creature dies, that's the biggest loose harvest. So you have this first, you have this giant die off in a very short period of time. So, and coming from uh, catastrophic conditions. So you will have a massive, first a massive loose harvest, sort of like a, a pre-power bonus for the system to get it all up and running to the next right. level. And then, like you say, then you've, you've put in place this newer, system of less energy loss where yeah you don't need as much it's easier to control it's smaller amounts of of, of of ai computing power you might say for the system and so when you start potentially looking at it that way you can kind of start saying wow that would almost kind of explain what we're going through so just to play this out to me that system is a closed loop like it is a closed loop system even if you get 20 percent of the population linked into the uh, AI, and then you're just running this thing, at, at, at what point does that system become irrelevant? Like it has to become irrelevant. I, I mean, that's what I think, because when you have 7 billion people, and theoretically, and you have all these different stories, the human drama, the this and the that, right? And, and, and you have this ability to tap into all these different energy nodes, but you have to continue the story in some way. You have to continue the story, whatever the story is. So when that goes and you have this harvest of 20% or 10% or 15, whatever that is, and they're directly linked in and they're getting that thing, there's nothing really new happening in there. There's really no new life, no new harvest, no new batteries because population will be um, dealt with in a very different way. So the, my question is, is that do they then take that energy and power up for another copy world, right? Is this how this world was exactly. created? 
Was this exactly. world created by another know, realm where people became batteries? There you go. That's that's I think you know when we talk about the metaverse and this was clinking into AI and I, I think it's good to learn it from the standpoint of saying, hey, I I don't want to be a part of that. So okay, but to, yes, take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. How do I know I'm not in the metaverse now, and that I'm getting memories when the metaverse is being shown to me here of the last time. I, we had this and 80% got left and I was part of the 20% there who was, you know, plugged myself in and, and came into this metaverse. So it's not just, I want to, I don't want to go into the one ahead of me. I want to backtrack as many metaverses as possible, as many AI um, uh, systems as possible to go back to as, as clear uh, of an original space as I can. I'm not saying that, like you say, that is, that is the way it is, but that's how I would want to think. It's not just I don't want to go forward. I want to go as back as far as possible. Or you would think um, Richard Rose used the, uh, the the concept of back when televisions used to actually have a cable plug in the back, right? When there's actually a wire. His point was, don't worry what's on the TV. Go through the wire and go right back to the source. Remove yourself back to the source so that you'll know exactly what you need to do or don't do. As long as you're caught on the screen or focused on the screen, you're not, you're not getting to where you want to go. So same thing. It's not about going forward, actually. It's about going backward as far back to the origin as possible. Right. I mean, no, it's possible. Just go back to the origin. Right. Um, last question. You're married, yeah. right? Yeah. How, how, how does your wife deal with the interpersonal growth and reality that you're uncovering and exploring is she on the same page or does she have to work to understand your evolving sort of cosmology and philosophy about who you are oh she's very knowledgeable on this subject she has been dealing with it in her own way for 20 or 30 years and um well you might say i'm, I'm moving at a an incredibly fast speed sometimes and she's kind of at times catching up but it's in no way in no way is it new and in many cases she i would say she's probably two or three steps ahead in certain areas and uh then i kind of catch up and get there we, we sometimes have of course some very detailed discussions and just because i feel or believe something she doesn't believe the exact same thing we're kind of in the same direction but from different points we just had a discussion today about uh about a particular author and a little different ideas upon it, but uh, that helps because I can share these ideas with the person I'm living with and spending my life with, and I'm not being, I'm not being thought of as you know crazy or actually that I'm being thought of as you're uncovering something quite important here, not only valuable for us individually but maybe for more than us. So, yeah, she's um, she's quite knowledgeable in this stuff and is is uh, as she puts it, it's much more interesting for her to listen to these interviews that I do now than when I was doing the exposition interviews. <laughs> really? This is, this is more in her wheelhouse. Interesting. That's interesting. Uh, well, this has been great. And by the way, you're, you're a pretty good fiction writer as well. I like your little fiction piece in there. Thanks. Yeah, it was good. The, the attention to detail, painting a picture of the surroundings the dialogue was, was quite good. And I'm glad you kept that in the book. Thanks. And I know that you were trying to figure out where you were going with it. And, and you have a bit of a hybrid. I hope there's more of that in the book because I only got the first three chapters. 
Yeah, no, there's only one novel chapter in this one, in this particular book, because it was just, I was finding it was taking so much time to, to craft it, uh, the novel chapters. So that's the only one like that. But there will be in the second book that I, I hopefully can write by next year that I will want to have like two or three of those, I think. Got it. I'd because love I, you I to think do a whole they, novel. I think they, 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 uh, that was my original idea. And it was just it'd be different if I had five, if I knew I had like five years or three years to write it. And I, I, but I felt, cause I started, I started really researching this hard in like March, maybe March, yep. uh, early April. Yeah. And, and I, and part of the reason was, I don't think we have a lot of time. I, yeah. I don't have a lot of time to play around with this. Like, like this reality is coming to a crunch point really, really quick. Yeah. And if I think I've got information to share, I've got a, as much as I wanted to thought I wanted to do it a particular way, I had to react to what I saw the reality, the, 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 what's what I'm looking for the uh, flags that reality was putting up of where this is going and how fast it's going to go. And again, that's why I didn't even wait to just uh, have the print book first. I wanted it out as a, as a PDF book first so that right. anybody who wanted to have it can start reading it like today and yeah, the print book comes out soon. And so does the audio book. Great. But um, I just, I didn't feel like we're in a place where we can wait. And I thought this, this information would help some people. So I, I, that's why, I, but the next one, I'll try to have a few more novel chapters. Yeah. No, it was, it was really good. And looking back on Castaneda's work, I mean, it's all a novel, right? Everything oh. is all, it's all a novel. Um, where do they find the PDF? Where are they going to find the book? Where are they going to find the recording of your uh, audiobook? Yeah, well, they can start uh, my website, which has the still terrible name, Egyptian-Wisdom-Revealed.com. But I'm sure um, there'll be a link for you somewhere and that you can go to Exit the Cave. And it's a it's a minimum $5 donation. So it's actually by donation and, um, and you can download the PDF right away. A couple of weeks, it'll be out. So you can start looking, you know, obviously it goes to Amazon first, but that doesn't mean you'd have to buy it at Amazon and it'll start moving to other bookstores slowly after that. Uh, on my uh, YouTube channel, Howdy McCoskey Talks, uh, I do read the first chapter of the book. So the whole first chapter is actually read. And then I will produce an audio book. A lot of people have asked, actually, would I, would I not only create an audio book, but would I read it? Um, oh, yeah. So many people have told me they like the sound of my voice, that yeah. it's, it's soothing to them somehow. You have a very so they, soothing they very voice. Clear. Yeah. I have. Yeah, I have to be the one to read it. So I, I'm going to be doing that right. um, near the end of the month. So I'm hoping that's ready in November. And um, yeah, so you can go to those those locations, my, my website and, and the YouTube channel, and you can track everything from there. And yeah, I'm hoping with two to three weeks that, that for those who want the print version, the print version will be will be ready for you then. But if you want the, you know, it's, it's $5 and it's one of those things I hate to say, I hate to keep saying this over and over again, but I really mean it. It's like, we don't really know how long we've got access to the things we have access to I now. I'm not you. saying, Hey, you're you. all going to be dead next week, but it just means you don't know how much power you've got, how much internet you've got, how much, you know, things are changing on a day-to-day -day basis right now. So it's not just me. If there's something out there that you think is important from an information perspective, yeah. on a knowledge yeah. perspective, whether it's a book, whether it's a website, whether it's they get that information, uh, particularly print it if it's really important or at least store it somewhere, don't wait. Don't think it's still going to be there 30 days from now. It might not. Yeah. Decide on what's important to you and, 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 and get access to it and have it available now. Yeah. This is discussions that we've had on my other channel and this one. Uh, yeah. It, 
not not only is there the potential for like a a, a big event, a grand event, a CME, whatever, they're disappearing the internet while we're talking right now. Things are going away. They're wiping, they're scrubbing. When you go into Google and do a Google search, it'll say, you know, 3 million results and you'll get maybe 25 pages of those 3 million results. And that's it, right? So unless you know really what you're looking for specifically, even then it's getting harder and harder to find this stuff. So, so that's why if there's something that's important to you, if you think my book could be interesting to you, and again, it's, it's a thesis, it's a presentation, it's, my, it's how I'm seeing the world. Doesn't mean you should believe it too. It's just information to ponder on really deep questions that hopefully you'd want to start getting answers for yourself and pick it up and uh, have it available for yourself. And, and, but not just me. Who else, what else out there do you, would you saying, hey, I really, I really should have this. I've been doing it myself. Like a few books that have kind of been on my list for a while, like oh, I should get to them. It's like, no, no, I should, I got to get these. Like, I, I don't, I don't know I'm going to be able to. So get them now. So, yeah. Any examples of the books that you had to have? Um, yeah. Well, what's, what was one that was really on the top of my list that as an example? Okay. There was one called, can you stand the truth by a woman named Angelica Anagnostu? Not that I necessarily agree with everything she's, she's putting out there, but what an interesting presentation. At times difficult to read, but wow, what an interesting presentation. That was, that was on one of those ones that was up there. I really wanted to read that I just got um, the trans, transformation of society, the trans counter there. Could you read it to me? I just want to get the title right. It's the it's the Belgian or uh, or um, uh, Dutch philosopher who wrote about the the totalitarian the the the, the psychology. So maybe it's called the psychology of totalitarianism. But he's talking more about mass formation. Mass formation. Maybe it's mass formation of trans of totalitarianism. That was on my list. Really interesting book to read. Yeah. Um, so th those have been a couple of things on my list that have been important oh yeah thanks here it is it's called the yeah the psychology of totalitarianism by matthias desmond yeah i think it's an interesting yeah. book yeah. he had some really good interviews that i, I saw i've, I I've to seen some of his interviews for very good stuff yeah well this yeah, is so that was on too. my list and yeah yeah and i just made sure that like little things little novels are back again uh night train to lisbon i'm reading that again that novel what a the movie was good, but the novel is outstanding, you know, as a real philosophic, um, Jean, almost like in the like Jean-Paul Sartre or a, or a Camus type of novel of really dealing with that philosophical existentialism uh, within. Right. So there's there's lots of these things out there, and, and I'm, I'm really enjoying making sure I've got them and I'm reading them. Right. Well, good. Thank, thank you for uh, sharing that yeah. and you, you, the ideas in your book and your uh, we'll make sure that the PDF link is on the uh, show notes here. And it's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks. Always good to be here, Robert. And uh, we'll hopefully be doing this again soon. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to follow up with you a few months down the line and see how not just the presentation of the material is doing, but how it's changed your life. Like, you know, how you're living how you're integrating these ideas. And if you have anything else to share with us in terms of the, uh, the escape plan, the great escape.
right? Right. All right. That's Howdy McCoskey. Thanks for being here. Uh, Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to say it when it's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. I'll be back on Sunday night with Sunday Night Astro Live, and uh, we'll be talking about astrology and worldly stuff.